So we're going to talk about design in relation to how to make a good project. And why this is critical is, is that I would have already been talking to you about the design elements of your projects, the theory that you might want to use, the uh, the sorry, the sample that you might want to use, and all of this is really really important because when I spoke to you last time about perspectives and the need to have a perspective in research and to look at a particular social problem, that's what's going to guide the research going forward. Um, I'm sorry to just take a, a quick pause. Um, I can hear uh, Maud in the background teaching her second years, I believe. Um, so if you just give me a second, I'm just going to close my office door. Okay, I'm back. So we're going to today talk some more about perspectives in research and the different perspectives that one can take in research and the ways that paradigms shape the kind of research that we're doing. And that's really critical for you to understand the different paradigms in and of themselves so that you are aware of the different kinds of positions that you can take, but also that you then can confidently pick a position and from that grow the project into the position that you, that you are taking and, uh, and are going to follow for the project. So I... I'm going to start to share my, my uh, screen with you and you'll see the slides that I'm, I'm going to share. Please remember that, of course, if you've got any questions at any time, stop me so that we can go over those questions and, and confidently sort of think about your work and what your contribution is going to be to the area that you're going to work on. And th this lecture follows quite closely from the last one in the sense that we're going to talk about the naughty words of research. We're going to talk about terminology um, that is specific to each of these different paradigms. We're going to talk about uh, the, the, the value of social science. And we're going to talk about uh, essentially what makes a good research project, which in our last lecture when we spoke about design we learned that what makes a good project is one that is consistent, that comes from, from reading, that has theory, that acknowledges, acknowledges its position. And in all of those things, thinking about paradigms, thinking about the, the ways that knowledge is situated in relation to a particular perspective, is really very critical. So we're going to essentially just be continuing that conversation from last week. And that, that takes us to the place where we, we first need to, to think through what is the value of social, social scientific research. So the, the slide that I don't have here and that I usually refer to is one that uh, differentiates 
journalistic work from uh, research work. Now, the, the, the kind of research work that we're going to do in this project is quite different from what journalists do. Even journalists who are doing research will not be doing research in the kind of form that we're going to be doing. So this kind of pure research, this, the, the kind of research that we're going to focus on is, is a scientific research, it's or, or sometimes called empirical research, meaning that we're going to do the data collection ourselves. And that is one of the key areas that differentiates journalism, pure journalism, from pure research. Obviously, some kinds of journalism look a lot like pure research, especially uh, investigative journalism, and some kinds of research look more like journalism. But I'm, I'm making the distinction between the two fields in a sort of general uh, dichotomy because... I want to show you how they do different things and also what kinds of things you're going to be doing that are going to possibly be, for those of you who are doing research for the first time, uh, new to you, um, different from what you expected, and that is going to require you to uh, put on a different cap to what you do when you're doing your journalistic work. So, in a sense... You've got, to, you've got to think differently and, and behave differently in research to what a, a standard journalistic research role even would be. And the differences that I, I often will, will comment on in relation to these two different uh, caps that you've got to wear is, is that uh, journalistic work focuses on the immediacy of storytelling. It focuses on the storytelling components of of events in the world. It um, is about accessing knowledge, so being able to speak to a wide group of people. It focuses therefore also on a wide range of knowledge, whereas research is much more focused on building knowledge, so knowledge building, and that, that can sometimes take a long time. In fact, research often does take a very long time. You'll see this year that, in fact, it will take the whole year to complete a project that actually is fairly small in its scope. So a much bigger project will take a much longer uh, time. And you think about, like, master study is two to three years, PhD is three to four years, and there are, there are longitudinal studies that take decades to complete. So, so research does take a very long time, um, but it then contributes in the, in the sense that it is more contextually based. It, it doesn't just tell you what happened, but it tells you why and how and when and where and the, the kind of other contextual factors involved in making things happen in the world. It obviously gathers the data itself. And then very critically, it's also ethically and morally driven, meaning, as we spoke about last week, that you're looking at a social problem and therefore are taking a position in understanding that problem and it is not trying to be neutral or uh, objective or unbiased. 
that's not the goal at all. The goal is to go to to take a, a position on something, um, which obviously is a, a key difference from journalistic uh, work and journalistic research. So it's very important that we we know that at the heart of social scientific research, of empirical research, is the idea that we're building on knowledge, and that it, that to do that we are coming at it from a particular ethical and moral position. And while that is true, while we are taking a position, we must also still acknowledge that this is an embedded part of the scientific method. So we're not doing bad science by having a position or by claiming a particular approach to our work. In fact, we are doing good science by being upfront about our position, acknowledging our biases, and then um, observing the world from that particular frame and allowing then the world to speak back to us. And we have to be open-minded enough for the world to change our mind, that, that we can't be so close-minded that if we believe that all people have blue eyes and we see people who don't have blue eyes and we continue to believe that, we, that all people have blue eyes, well, that's a huge problem. And I won't say what kind of problem it is. I'm sure you can understand that, that that's either a failure of, of uh, logical abilities or... Um, a failure of sight. I mean, I, I don't know beyond that what, what you could say the problem is if you continue to believe things that are discredited by your observations of the world. So taking a position doesn't mean that it, you're just going to forever and forever just uh, flout your own opinions and, and push your own agenda. You use that position as a starting point. This is where I'm starting but it doesn't mean that that's where you're ending. And in fact, my personal belief is, is that if you end up with uh, findings that support what you believed in the beginning, you're probably, you've done, probably done something wrong. Um, so the point of research is to know more than when you started. That's the point. If you knew the answer you wouldn't need to do the research. So the point of doing the research is to, to be, to, is to grow in what you understand and know about that topic. So you don't want to, to be close-minded uh, to the world in your investigation. And that's what makes this scientific, is, is that you, you acknowledge the position that you're coming at the world from, you observe the world in some kind of form, you, you ask people questions, you go and do tests, you, you put stuff under a microscope, whatever the method is that you're doing, and you then see what you see. So you, you record and describe and, and accept that that is what is happening in the world, and you report on that on whatever it is that you are seeing in the process of doing your data collection. And that's what this word empirical research is meaning. It means that you are not just writing 
from your own knowledge, but you are writing from some kind of direct or indirect observation or experience of the world, that you're actually going out into the field, into, into the area that you're going to work on. Sorry, just going to admit someone. And in doing so, you are going to observe and note what, uh, what you see about how the world works. And so the scientific method in that way is always an ongoing process. It is never a complete process. It's never a case that you will, f you will find um, the answer to everything, you know, life, the universe, and everything, um, as uh, Douglas Adams would say. Anybody's read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I do absolutely recommend. Um, okay, you're never going to find the answer to the life, life the universe, and everything. Um, you're always just going to make observations and then check them again. So, so theory is always evolving. So you, you start with a position. Um, so you start with a position, you check that, you, you, so you formulate a, uh, a set of questions, you formulate your hypotheses, that's a very quantitative term, but nonetheless you, you formulate your, your aims and objectives from the questions that you are developing. You then check them against the world. Um, can everybody just make sure you've got your mics off? Um, just hearing some sound in the background. Um, so you check them against the world, and either they're correct or they're not, or they need revision of some form, and you then do that. You revise, you revise or alter or expand or reject your hypothesis, or you accept it, right? You, that's also a possibility. And you use that to then uh, look at what you thought was going to happen and to comment on that. And from that, you can then develop a, a general set of principles or ideas or theories that can explain what you are seeing. So, so either if, let's say I was looking at uh, agenda setting in the reporting of a particular event, and, um, and then you can refine that and, uh, sorry, you develop these, these uh, what am I, sorry, I'm distracted by the comment, so let me just make sure. Is everybody hearing me? There's a comment that's come through on my end. Um, okay, am I the only one who's not hearing? Uh, in Rubiso, uh, I think you may be the only one. Okay. Okay, I'm going to continue. Um, uh, people can hear me. Um, so the example I was using was agenda setting. So, so agenda setting and the reporting of something. I look at journalists or I talk to, to students in journalism or I talk to people who are reading newspapers and I find that agenda setting works but that some aspect of it doesn't. So I refine that theory to say this theory works except for this component and maybe there's a new component that I can replace it with. 
And that becomes my new guiding principle. And I then want to say, okay, is that only true in this situation? Or is it true anywhere else? And so I then will continue to do research, continue to make observations, continue to have questions about, okay, does this new principle of agenda setting apply in other circumstances? And what might those be? How can I go about um, finding out about this? So I then uh, will go to back to the world and check again. So I will look at other media institutions or other people who are doing work. Um, I will, yeah, I will just go in and find ways to, to test my hypothesis again in new ways. So I'm constantly in this loop of checking and, and revising the scientific method to, to take that position that I initially had about agenda setting and now grow it and develop it in relation to what I'm seeing. So very crucially, this is an ongoing process. It is one that is never concluded. Most research ends with we need more research. Um, I showed some of you this morning the two theses that um, have just come through journalism, two master's theses that are going to graduate now in, in the May graduation. And um, I know certainly for the one that, that I supervised, the, the answer is yes, there's some really interesting insights into how uh, young people are participating on social media in relation to activism, but we need to continue this conversation to think about how this is, how this is operating in other spaces or for other young people. And so that is a normal part of the scientific method. If you were to conclude, so now for all time, young people will, will be known as as such, as having done such, well, that that ignores the the real lived experiences. That actually, this may may be true, and and in fact, may offer some really nice truths about what's happening at a particular socio historical moment in in our context. But it 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 may not be true in other places. It may not be true. Um, for all time. So we need to be able to respond to where are the changes happening, what are they they're saying, what are they allowing us to know and think and do in the world, because research should have an impact, right? It shouldn't just be we just all pat ourselves on the back, stand on a soapbox and, and pat ourselves on the back about like how much more we know than anybody else. Well, no, right? We want to, to make research that has an impact on the field that we're working in. And making an impact is really very critical in, in the ways that research has been defined more recently in our context. So when you go to meetings, uh, research meetings and committee meetings about research, increasingly you're hearing, well, what's the impact? Um, both in terms of you know, any ethical impacts that may, may be problematic, but also what is this doing to solve the, the problem that you're actually 
you know, were motivated to explore in the first place. So we're not just doing research for research's sake. We're not just picking a theory for picking a theory's sake. We want to pick a, a problem and, a, and a, a solution that actually is going to make a difference. And for that reason, we don't want to be just beating the drum of old theories and, um, and just, you know, not really being concerned about what the quality of our data is or, or who we talk to, so long as we sort of just meet the basic objectives. We really do want to, uh, to, to build on, on what has already been said about our, our topic currently. So if people are constantly evolving and developing theories, where is that space happening and how can we become a part of it? How can we not just you know, go to an old theory book from 60 years ago, but actually talk to people who, are, who have taken that and built careers off of figuring out how that theory works in the context or actually revising it and building new theories that are more relevant to, to our, the space, the time and space that we're in. How can we find those people? How can we find that information? And how can we then take that and build it into our uh, thinking and engagement with, with knowledge and the practices of, of scientific research. Now, one of the ways that um, I talk about a lot, uh, and you will probably hear me talk about this a lot more when you get to the analysis stage of the research, once you've collected your data and are now um, going to be making sense of it and, and presenting it to the world, is what in research we call the black swan conundrum. And, uh, I mean, research likes to have these kinds of uh, examples every so often. So you'll hear about, you know, like um, uh, Schrodinger's cat or whatever, which you don't need to know about, although it's a, it's a fascinating example of some kinds of theoretical thinking. But, um, but the black swan conundrum in research is, is actually the goal for us to produce good research. So what this, the black swan conundrum is, is uh, it's a, it was a philosophical argument presented by a, a man named, very unfortunately named Kant. And um, K-A-N-T, for those who are worried that I'm swearing at you, um, I'm not, that's, that's his name, and that's the pronunciation of, of the name. Um, and his, his idea about uh, scientific research and what makes good science is that it's, it's very easy in research to get into a place where, and this is I was talking about beating on the drum of old theories, where you're just taking an approach and you're going into the world and finding evidence for that approach and... You know, you check off the boxes of what you're doing and you never actually uh, speak to the reality of the world or to, to growing that, uh, the, the thinking that you have. So it's just, you know, like, it's sort of in a, in a sense this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, like if I think 
I'm a loser. I'm going to just walk into the world and see every time people treat me like a loser. And therefore, you know, like that reinforces my belief about myself. Whereas if I were to look for examples where people treat me well, I might have to rethink how I think about myself. And that's essentially what the black swan conundrum is doing. Is it saying if we believe that all swans are white and we go out into the world and look for white swans, well, we just, firstly, that could be an endless project. We could spend our life just going to new, new places looking for white swans and every time we see a white swan, we just check off the box and... And wonderful, our hypothesis is confirmed. Our theory, our, our expectation is, is just easy, easy, easy. Um, but we would just need one black swan, just one, to, to tell us that there is something else happening and that we need to revise our understanding about the world. And so that a goal of research should be that we always look to disconfirm our theory, right? We always look for disconfirming evidence rather than looking for confirming evidence. So if we believe that uh, there is corruption in the reporting of, of state capture, well, actually, we need to look not just at, at the corruption, we need to look at the practices that are happening in relation to state capture in their entirety to look for discrediting evidence. So we need to look that there wasn't corruption. Maybe this was something else that was happening. Maybe there's another explanation for the, the, the evidence that we're seeing, right? So we're seeing a problem in, in the reporting on state, state capture, Maybe this could be some other kind of issue that has, has revealed itself in this kind of way. And the reason we do that is because if we never find any black swans, if we never find any disconfirming evidence, that actually strengthens our argument. So I, I looked... I looked really hard for black swans. I never found any. And therefore, my view that, that all swans are white is extra strong. It, it has extra merit because I have actively tried to, to disprove myself and I can't find any, any evidence for that. Okay, do you understand? So whether you're looking at gender-based violence or you're looking at the media or you're looking at democracy or you're looking at anything, you want to actually disprove the position that you start with. And that's very, very fundamental because when we talk about coming at research from a, a, very, a very specific position, Embedded in that, yes, you're going to acknowledge this is the position I have, this is the, the place that I'm starting this journey, this is my uh, situated understanding of the world um, and who I am, 
but I'm then going to to prove myself wrong or prove myself right in trying to prove myself wrong um, because that's what makes really good, strong scientific research. And this is how also you keep that open-mindedness to the, the evidence that you're getting from your research so that you're not just uh, beating on the drum of a position that you've come to the project with and you're never going to be convinced otherwise. This is what, what you need to be doing, is actually very deliberately and actively looking for any other explanation for the problems that you have seen in the world. Okay, are there any questions about this at this point? Okay, no questions? Remember, yes. Hi. Hi, Musa. Yes? You've gone quiet? Is it, is it me? Yes, okay, so the question's about confirmation bias. Um, I think that that's a fair concern that we, ha that we have in research, that there may be confirmation bias. Like I say, the, the, the point is, is to not have that confirmation bias, that we don't want to, to just confirm what we already know. And the more we go through the, the method and the, particularly the analytic steps, the, the more that it will be clear how you avoid confirmation bias because the steps of research uh, entail that, you, that you, you can't have that. So, for example, when you're coding your data and, and uh, thematizing your data, you have to do so based off of what is in the, the actual data set itself. Um, so... You can avoid it through those very practical steps of the, of the methodology. But I think also being aware already that when you're drawing up your research questions or when you are um, thinking through your theory, that you're actually trying to disprove a, uh, the position, that you're not just trying to, um, to prove the, the approach that you're using. I think at this point what's more likely to happen is, is that you're going to, to claim a position and be very openly um, in support of that position. And then as you go through the method, the method will force you to um, take into consideration all the aspects of the, the data that you've seen in the world. And so what will be very critical is planning your interview questions and planning your analysis to avoid confirmation bias. I hope that that um, answers the question. Sure. So yes, confirmation bias is, is absolutely something we, we can and should be thinking about. Okay.
So what I want to move on to, um, or from that, is is to very specifically then start to talk about the positions that we can take in research. When we talk about situated knowledge, we're talking about the fact that that knowledge doesn't come from the sky, doesn't just um, magically appear, that knowledge comes with a particular history, it comes with particular embodied understandings of the world, it comes from the, the positions that you take and from the decisions that you make in the, in the process of, of building knowledge. So the, the ways that we, we relate to theory, the ways that we relate to the world, the ways that we um, decide to to pursue the, the projects that we are going to look at is all parts of what we call situated knowledge. So I spoke to you a, a little bit last week about some of my own research and um, just to very briefly touch on that again, obviously in my case, the fact that I'm a white researcher working in an African context um, often against differences in language and culture um, and religion uh, in some cases matters. It doesn't, it doesn't not matter, it, and it can't not matter. It absolutely matters who I am and what I bring to the table and the decisions that I think are best for how to design the project and, and who to talk to and what questions to ask. All of that is critical to any research that I undertake. And similarly, you bring your own situated understandings. And while you may share some things in common with your participants, there may be other things that you have that are very different. So it could be issues around age or class or, um, or gender, right? So don't take for granted the, the, the fact that this is only... Um, true when we're talking about race, that actually other features of who you are may situate you in a particular kind of way. And similarly, then the decisions that you make about what kind of research to do come from your histories and what you know about the world. So, so you may be more inclined to do a qualitative project or a quantitative project or you may be inclined to use one theory over another. All of this comes from somewhere. It doesn't just, you know, it's not Taryn saying to you, you must study this topic, or you must do it in X, Y, and Z way. Obviously, I can guide you on what makes good research, but I'm not going to make the decisions of the project for you. So you're making those decisions, and in the process of making those decisions, you are claiming a position you are you are putting yourself on a one hill over another hill and that's really very critical and we spoke i believe already last week about inductive versus deductive projects so the relationship with theory very critical as to how that you make the design decisions of the project and so you know taking one position over another 
allows you to see some aspects of, of the world and not others. So last time we spoke about you know, going to Mars and we showed that there are many different kinds of projects in, in an attempt to go to Mars that you could explore. Another example that I use often is education um, because you could look at this from the perspective of the individual student and their uh, experiences of education. You could look at teachers or communities or parents and, and how they um, allow for certain kinds of education practices. Or you could look at governance issues and you could look at um, the ways that funding of schools and, um, and communities allows for certain kinds of experiences within the, the scholastic realm. So the angle that you come at this theoretically is important, how much credit you give to theory, so whether you're more, and I spoke about phenomenology last week, whether you're more phenomenological and want to allow the world to speak to you, or whether you want to test theory very directly or specifically, or whether you're a mix of both. All of these are critical to the kind of position that you're taking in research. So one of the things that, uh, this is another example that I've, I've, I've shared to show how this works, and also to distinguish between facts versus knowledge. And obviously in journalism, you may be quite familiar with facts, and you may want to work very closely with facts. Um, in research, we're much more interested in knowledge. This is the context-based stuff that I was talking about earlier. So a fact could be something like research shows that 90% of people like chocolate ice cream. Now, that fact will sometimes be like brought into headlines of, of reporting on certain things. People will say, 9 out of 10 people, dot, 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 right? Do this when they break up or... Um, will, you know, not get, get the vaccine or whatever, right? So, so you get these, these sort of statistics and numbers and, and facts given to us, often without any sort of reasoning behind them. They're just given to us as this is, this is how the world is. But in research, we, we, don't, we don't actually like facts, um, and I know that may sound strange because uh, obviously the, the, the goal of knowledge is to, to get to a place where we can talk about how the world works in some kind of factual way. But research doesn't really like facts. Research likes context and it likes understanding the roots of knowledge. It likes thinking about the, the ways that ideas and knowledge are being built. So in a, in a sort of a more descriptive explanation, you would find something in research that says, chocolate ice cream is a popular choice for those consuming a typical Western diet, and there's a reference. In a study amongst scholars at Yale University, up to 90% uh, chose the chocolate meltdown ice cream over other available options. Um, 
and then it's referenced again. This choice is the consequence of specific targeted campaigns that have uh, zoned in on chocolate ice cream consumption amongst millennials, specifically young people from the ages 19 to 25. I don't know why this is repeating so much. Um, anyway, the slogan of the campaign is have a chocolate meltdown instead, playing on references to the volatility of young people. The campaign shows young Americans in a state of anxiety in classroom with family and amongst uh, peers that show what might result in a meltdown. That youth is seen as a, a volatile transitional period is key to developmental theories over the last 50 years. More, these authors um, recognize that consumer choices of this kind might drive the obesity epidemic and create a demand for dairy goods in an otherwise failing market economy. Okay, now that is a, a much more specific understanding of where this fact comes from. So we're not just saying all people like chocolate ice cream. We're not just saying um, that there's, yeah, that we're, we're giving the context of what the study was, how they came up with these numbers, who the, the, the participants were, and how it was related to other conditions within the world that these young people are, are facing. And in fact, this could be the start of asking questions from different perspectives um, on different areas. So this, this sort of uh, study could lead us into talking about the Western diet or obesity. It could lead us into talking about perceptions of youth or developmental crises. It could lead us to talking about consumer trends or market economy. Or it could lead us to talking about depression and anxiety amongst young people. So they actually are, from this one sort of study that, that was done, we can see that there is the possibility of pursuing knowledge in various areas. However, the fact doesn't really give us that opportunity. So unpacking what we know about the world, unpacking the, the kinds of information that we are receiving, thinking about where that information comes from, what does it mean, what is the world that, that it represents, can really start to be the kinds of initial questions that shape our, the angle that we are going to take on research. And the first angle that we might take is, are we doing a quantitative or a qualitative study? So do we think that we want to to continue to pursue people's interests in ice cream and, and whether you know, there's a universal interest in chocolate ice cream? Or do we want to understand what, in what ways does, uh, does chocolate ice cream, or uh, why, why does chocolate ice cream feature so heavily in young people's lives? Now, the study itself that, uh, that I had made up says a little bit about why that may be, but we could continue to explore some of those things. So, so why does the media have such an impact on young people's uh, food choices? What are the experiences of young people in universities that uh, you know, lead to the kinds of stress and anxiety that, that, that we're seeing in those spaces? 
all of those kinds of why questions might best be answered qualitatively. And I mean, the, the, the names kind of give, give the, the game away in this, in this case. Um, so quantitative research is focused on quantity, it's focused on, on measurable, observable um, ideas and units that, that can be um, calculated. Whereas qualitative research is much more focused on quality, so looking um, deeply at, at the, the kinds of experiences that individuals are having. And here's the elephant that I mentioned last week. Um, so lots of people looking at the elephant blindfolded, and they're all looking at it from different angles. And the one with the tail thinks it's a rope, the one with the leg thinks it's a tree, the one with the trunk thinks it's a snake, etc. Right? So they're all uh, in understanding different parts of the, the animal and therefore coming up with different understandings of what they are um, observing. I mean, obviously not with their eyes, but, but measuring and, and, uh, and making sense of in other ways. And that in research is what we know as paradigms. So, so paradigms uh, are the different perspectives within research that we could take. So we think about qualitative or quantitative as being the approach that you're going to take, and the paradigm is, is then the, uh, the angle or the the kind of um, position that you take within that. And there are three key paradigms that I'm going to talk to you about today. Each of these offers a different perspective on the world and they align themselves with either more quantitative approaches or more qualitative approaches. There are more paradigms than this. So we've already, for example, spoken about phenomenology, and phenomenology is not on my list. It's more of an, an approach that fits uh, better with um, work in anthropology, sometimes in sociology, and so uh, maybe a little bit of like gender studies or history. But it doesn't, so it doesn't fit as easily in media studies. But it exists as a paradigm. We're not going to spend too much time on it. We're going to instead spend time on the, the three big paradigms that exist, so positivism, interpretivism, and critical social science, to understand what these positions are, and then for you to think through which position you might do in your research. So the first, the first of these is, uh, is positivism. And positivism is very much the quantitative method. Uh, so most quantitative research is positivist in nature. Uh, you can get qualitative uh, positivist work. It's a lot more um, sort of socially based and, and trying to measure social relationships between people. But for the most part, you can kind of think of uh, Qualitative, quantitative work and positivism as being very closely aligned. 
And positivism is the idea that the world is knowable and measurable, that, that the world is uh, governed by the laws of nature, and that we can directly, visibly, um, unquestionably observe and, and see these natural laws happening um, in process. And that those can be replicated. So if I see you know, an apple falling from a tree and can talk about gravity, the next person will, will see the same thing. They're not going to suddenly see an apple start floating um, or, I don't know, levitating above the ground. We're all going to see the same activity and therefore from that confer the same uh, universal laws that would apply to, to every aspect of, of the natural world. So we're, we're in fact looking to create universal laws. We're, we're, the, the goal is, is that if we observe the world and develop um, theories about how the world works uh, in terms of the philosophy and mathematics and biology, and chemistry of the world, we can, from that, uh, con consistently test that in different places and get to, a, get to a point where it is so well tested and so well observed that it is, it is universal and true of everything and everyone. And because it's universal, this leads us to also then believe that reality is patterned and stable, um, it's, it's replicable, I mentioned that already, that, that it can be observed by multiple um, individuals or everybody who's, who's going to observe the same phenomenon. And when it's applied to human life, the, the key focus is on human behavior. And the focus is on human behavior because that's what we can observe about humans. So we can't, for example, see the internal processes, emotions, um, traumas, history that people bring to, even language that people bring to the, the situations that they're in, but we can see how they respond. So we can see that if we put people in similar situations, they will respond similarly. And this um, is, a, in fact, a very key area within social psychological research that focuses on doing exactly that, of controlling the environments that people are in and then seeing how they respond. And uh, there has been a lot of... Uh, really interesting and sometimes very unethical projects that have been done to, to do this kind of research. Um, I'm hoping that the video I show you will play um, because I'll give you an example of some of this in a second. Uh, within this model, so, so these, these ideas that I've just covered are the ontology of positivism. So that is the worldview of positivism. So that the world is knowable, measurable, and that 
we, we want to look at things that can be directly observed and manipulated in order to discover universal laws. The epistemology is, is that the researcher is objective. So the researcher should as much as possible not affect the data at all, that there should be no um, interaction um, between the researcher and the, the data or the subjects of the data. And this is where I, I talk about, you know, researchers don't sneeze in the petri dish. So whether it is actual scientific uh, investigations where you might put something under a microscope or whether it is you observing human behavior, you don't want their behavior to be affected by who you are or what kind of uh, study you're doing as far as is possible for you to control that. So um, you don't want to, to shape the data through your interaction. And the methods that are best suited to positivism include uh, quantifiable data uh, and statistics, which can be gathered often through experimentation, observation, and surveys. And examples of, of fields that will use positivism is often your natural and physical sciences, um, evolutionary uh, scientists and, and theory uh, applies, and then behaviorists who will, will come at, as I said earlier, the behavior of individuals to examine how individuals react to certain kinds of stimuli. And the terminology of, of positivism is, is very scientific. So this is the kind of, kind of study that would use things like influence. I hear this word all the time, or effects. Um, so often students will come to me and say they want to see the influence of this thing on that thing. And immediately that word says to me that they um, are doing a positivist study or are using the terminology of positivism incorrectly for a qualitative study. Um, and it's usually the, the, the latter. Um, it's usually that people will talk about influence or effect um, and not realize that that aligns them with positivism. And the reason it aligns them with positivism is because positivists are interested in cause and effect. So they're interested in, in seeing how one thing causes an effect in another thing, or, to use the word that I, that I mentioned earlier, how it influences the other thing. And the only way you can see the, that kind of causal relationship in research is to, to do a, some kind of positive study where you control variables and, and see that only that one thing can cause that one effect. In social life and in, in complicated social processes, where there are multiple things happening simultaneously, um, and it's very difficult to control all of those variables, all of the factors that might influence um, a certain kind of behavior. So it is more appropriate to talk about experiences or understandings or perceptions or representations than it is to talk about influence or effect in qualitative 
qualitative work. Okay, I'm going to um, try and show you a video. I hope that it plays and it plays with sound. Um, I will share it with you separately after the, the class in case it doesn't play. Um, but uh, I will see also if I can get it on uh, YouTube so I can also try and show it to you that way um, in a second.